Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello everyone, I'm Danny Kelly and this is The View from the Lane, the Athletics Tottenham Hotspur podcast. Welcome one, welcome all. I'm joined today by the Athletics Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitbrook, making a welcome return to the show after a sojourn in the United States, more about which a little later in the podcast. Now Charlie, you were at the game against Norwich yesterday, 3-0. James last week on the podcast said he would be happy to settle for 1-0. How excited should we be? Well, I mean, I think we were gently and deservedly mocked for saying that you know with a couple of wins Spurs are right on the top four's tail because we've been saying that it feels like much of the last year and then inevitably they haven't then won those games so I think the fact they have won these games and they've won them comfortably to put themselves uh, what is it two points off fourth with a game in hand that's a really really positive week you know we talked about it being an important week that they had to win these games and they have done with minimum fuss and before Thursday they hadn't won a game by a greater margin than one goal in the league this season. So to have won a couple pretty comfortably is um, is very welcome. Yeah, but I mean, you find yourself in the almost inhuman position of cheering on Chelsea against West Ham, only for West Ham, who are an actual decent team, to go and spoil everything. Because Spurs would have been fourth this weekend mm, if Chelsea had hung on at the London Stadium, but they weren't good enough to do that. That's, that, that's the truth of it. Looking at the, the, the raw statistics, 3 nils in any win the Premier League, I would normally say it's a really good thing to get, but I'd always excluded at the moment Newcastle and Norwich who are not very good teams from that, Jack. And what worried me slightly, and I'm, I'm allowed to have worries after 3-0 win, you know, yeah, yeah, right, good. Let, but let's look at the, the downside. 45% possession against the worst team in the league at home. You're not going to win a lot of Premier League games with that stat. I think you can win Premier League games with less than 50% possession if you've got you know, if you're good at attacking efficiently when you do have the ball, and Tottenham certainly got players, you know, like Kane and Son, who are obviously very good at doing that. I do, I do think they played better against Brentford. You know, I've got to caveat this by saying I watched both games on television. Mm-hmm. I wasn't at the ground for either of them. But if you look at the XGs, so I think Tottenham won the just looking at the Opta stats for XG. Tottenham won the Norwich game one point five to one point three, but they won the Brentford game two point two to zero point four. So by a much much bigger margin. And you can see, you know, I think Pookie had a few half chances yesterday. and One really good chance, very early yeah. on. Really good chance. Whereas I thought Brentford was really probably the most complete and dominant performance that Tottenham put in all season against, frankly, a better team than Norwich. Did you share that view, Charlie? Because we've become so hypnotised by possession stats. And, you know, I understand that people with possession without purpose is, is, is pointless in itself. But I am still interested in, in how difficult Spurs find it to hang on to the ball for long periods of time yeah I mean I'm I think the possession thing can be a bit of a red herring because 
you know, you can you can be controlling a game even when you don't have the ball. Sure, you can be passing around pointlessly at the back. Of course yeah, you can, I mean, yeah. you know, you think of peak Mourinho Chelsea teams against the kind of most tippy tappy Arsenal teams, and Arsenal would dominate possession. But you never thought for a second that they were the ones in control. You knew Chelsea were just there waiting for their moment to pounce, and invariably Lampard would get it, find Drogba, and Chelsea would score. That's obviously quite an extreme example. But even Mourinho's Tottenham, there would be times where it felt like they had control without the ball and others where you were just like, they're overwhelmed. I don't think it matters hugely in a game like this that Norwich had a bit more of the ball because I don't feel like they necessarily had control of the game. They did have those good chances and there was that one right in front of Lloris um, in the second half which would have made it 1-1. But yeah, I mean, I I, I felt in both games they they looked pretty confident they looked like they had a plan they looked like they knew what they were doing you know you saw the way the front three were interacting with one another these were clearly patterns that had been worked on and that was reassuring that it you know it feels sustainable it's it under Mourinho there would be wins and and there were periods where where it felt a little bit more like they had a plan whether you like that plan or not that's up to you but there were also times where it felt a little bit off the cuff and that let's get Kane the ball and hope that he can produce some magic whereas this felt less like that especially as I wrote in the piece after the game that Kane at the moment is not at his best you know and that's not to say he's playing badly he's offering an important focal point and he's doing some things well but you know it's really Lucas and Son who've stepped up uh, in the last couple of games and it's what set Spurs scored seven goals in the last three league games all of which have been wins no Kane goal or assist in that time and that's very unusual to for him not to be dominating the goal and assist charts for them. And I just don't think Conte is really a sort of possession fetishist at all. Like he's not, he's not as ra- kind of radically sort of anti-possession as Mourinho is. Who's kind of happy, happy to win games with twenty, thirty percent possession. But he, by the same token, he's not. He's absolutely not a Guardiola type coach who demands that his teams would have kind of sixty, seventy plus percent possession. Like, I mean, I might be wrong, but my memory of Conte's Chelsea is that they would dominate games, but they wouldn't have. You know, they wouldn't need seventy percent of the ball to win. So I don't think we need to worry too much about Tottenham's possession levels at the moment. And just the way that they play, you know, if you have, if you have two central midfielders and they're Skip and Hoiberg, who are good at what they do, but not, you know, not Davis Silva type players, you're not going to have those huge possession statistics. But they are clearly being much more, secu- you know, more creative with the ball and more secure without it than they were at any point in the last few years already. And that really points to the improvement he's made in only the first month in charge. Okay, just, um, of course, uh, to keep up my personal vendetta, whatever Mourinho's views on possession are or are not, his fifth defeat in seven for Roma at the weekend uh, suggests that, uh, that his views are not being met with uh, with over- overwhelming success in Italy. And other coaches say, well, that's all very well, Jose, but I'm going to do this instead. Another defeat for Rome at the weekend. All right, that's enough moaning about the possession stats, which I wanted to get off my chest. Let's talk about some of the positives. Um, you already mentioned a young man that puts in a shift, not always appreciated by the Spurs fans, but I think whose overall efforts means that uh, he, he'll remain the first team. That's enough about Harry Kane for now, because the other two forwards were the star of the show in many ways. Son getting back some kind of form, Charlie, after a fallow period by his own standards mm. as well. And what do we make of Lucas Moura, who is a kind of superhero when he's bothered? Oh, not, not bothered, that's not fair. He's a superhero footballer at times, and other times you just wonder what the hell this lad is doing. Yeah, I mean, I guess on one hand, the, the Conte thing is key here because I think were it not for Conte, we'd just be saying, well, we know Mora can do this. He has games where he's absolutely scintillating, but then we know he has games where he looks awful and is running down blind alleys and you know barely looks like a Premier League footballer. The fact that it's Conte 
I think allows you to think, well, but maybe now he's got a coach who, you know, Conte loves these kind of players. All the raw materials are there, you know, and you've got someone with a brilliant attitude. So it's about harnessing all of that and turning it into, you're putting it all together in a way that Moore has never really been able to do. But he was brilliant. I mean, he and he has been, he's been one of the Spurs' best players, probably their best attacker since Conte came in. Every performance he's been... That's fair. He, he's been really, really good. And, and the reception when he's been taken off has been fantastic. So someone made the point to me on Twitter, I forget I forget who it was, the contrast from the Mora Bergvine sub in Nuno's last game, where which, you know, prompted a near mutiny, to yesterday where it was just this lovely warm applause standing ovation. But I mean that first goal. Oh he there are four bits of it I think are outstanding. He does this amazing bit of skill to first work the yard, then the one-two with Son is so sharp, then the drag back, and then the finish. It's amazing, and I, you know, I talk about it in the piece, that there are games where he reminds me of when I used to play FIFA many moons ago, and you'd be playing on a level that was just clearly too low for you, and you're like, okay, this is just actually a bit boring, you need to move it up, because he's just gliding past players so effortlessly. And there was one in the first half where he did it, and Billy Gilmore clearly was just like, well... There's nothing really I can do here except for take a yellow card. And when he's in those kind of moods, he's just, he's just so hard to deal with. So it was, it was if, great to see that, him. What if that stopped being Lucas Moura's mood and became Lucas Moura's mode? Mm. Then what a football you'd have on your hands. Totally. And and maybe with Conte that will happen. Maybe. We should make the point, I suspect, too, that, that I mean, for those who didn't get to see it or haven't seen it yet, which seems unlikely because you listen to this podcast, but we should just warm our hands on that goal and savour it because... Uh, Spurs haven't been getting a lot of goals, and they certainly haven't been a lot of great goals. That was an actual great goal, probably the best, I think, since Son's run against Burnley. A mm. fantastic goal. Well done, Lucas Moore, and everyone else who was involved. I guess the, the challenge with Lucas, Danny, as you say, is can he produce anything that's at all consistent? You know, he's so like he's so good when he's good. The hat-trick at Ajax is not really something that anything anybody else could do. And yet, what his, I'm just looking at Wikipedia now, his best goal-scoring season in the Premier League for Tottenham is... So in 2018-19, he got 10. Oh, did he? 10 in the Premier League wow. in 18-19. So that's only once he's got to double figures in the league. And he's played a lot of games for a lot of different managers. But then at the same time, you know, a few weeks ago, we were saying, oh, they've got to get him out to get Ndombele or Lo Celso in. And um, that's clearly not the case. So uh, it, no. I guess it's going to remain one of those enigmas throughout the whole season, isn't it? Like, he'll, you know, people will forget this game and then he'll, people will call for him to get out of the team. But then the fact is, he guarantees you probably more in the final third than both with and without the ball than Lo Celso or Bergwijn or Deli would. But he can't, he can't be kept in the team. And, uh, you know, uh, I love his work rate. But he can't be kept in the team because of one spectacular display every 10 games. Otherwise, what you've got is a Harrods version of Andros Townsend. And that's not going to be good enough, is it? <laughs> well, that Conte talked about that after the game, the the need for him to add consistency. You know, he, Conte just has this habit of saying exactly what I think fans want to hear. And, he, you know, he said that, yeah, it's great he scored this goal and played really well, but he needs to do it more often. And I referenced, you know, since the start of last season, he's got four goals That's the same in the Premier League. That's the same as own goal. So that gives you a sense of the fact that he's not been hitting great numbers. But like I say, it's the Conte factor. That's what makes you believe maybe this time it's different. I think if he does that under Nuno, we're saying great performance, but we know what Lucas does. He has these great performances and then he's really bad. Conte is making every, it seem for everyone like, but maybe this time it's going to be different because Victor Moses, etc., etc. I'm going to come on to Jack's sensitivity to Twitter criticism in just a second. But uh, I, I myself got plenty uh, from the listeners to this podcast when I was newly arrived here when I was saying that I thought Hoiberg was Tottenham's third most important player after Kane and Son. 
And people are saying, what are you talking about? The fella can't do this, can't do that, can't do the other. And yet he's been an absolute staple in the team for the best part of two years now. And yet, in the last few games, Oliver Skip has, I would say, I would argue, outplayed him in an almost identical role. And it is an odd team that has two identical players in that position, although we've seen his national teams do it regularly. Let me put a scenario to you. Let's say Lucas carried on playing the way he's playing and that um, Lo Celso or Ndombele started to be brilliant in training or in January they're bringing this famous creative midfielder who has to play next to one of the holding midfielders. Who would it be that go now at the team, Hoiberg or Skip? I think Hoiberg would go out the team right now on, on current form. I mean, Skip's been so good that the way it's being presented, it feels like Hoiberg's doing really great work to get the best out of Skip because Skip's been playing in this more advanced role in the last couple of games. He's been a lot more creative and Hoiberg's been giving him that platform to do that. But I think it would be interesting because I don't see, at the moment, Skip's doing that job, that more creative job so effectively. So I think to then ask him to drop back, that would be quite a big sacrifice of him. And I think it's really interesting that Conte has clearly settled on these two He's, he wants to address the creativity problem with these two. It's not gonna, he's not going to change the personnel. He's going to change the emphasis a little bit. And we saw that the way Skip played yesterday and against Brentford. So I think he'd be really loath to then drop Skip back into that role, the role that Hoybier is currently doing in order to accommodate an Ndombele or a Lo Celso. But I, just th- I think Skip's undroppable at the moment, the way he's playing. Yeah, I think I'd probably agree. Like I was never... I was kind of waiting to be convinced a little bit on Skip. But I think the last two games has been as well as I've seen him play ever really both Brentford and Norwich I thought he was fantastic I think I don't really see what at the moment Hoiberg is better than Skip at you know is there, is there any aspect of the game right now that you say Hoiberg was doing better than Skip I'm not sure I can think of one so maybe I would keep him in the team but then because then if as you were saying with Lucas like if Lucas does continue to play well then suddenly that spot that we thought might be available for a Don Blaine Celso type player isn't really that doesn't really exist in quite the same way. And so Conte would have to look at trying to integrate some more creativity into the team in a different position. Just a bit of physiology in there as well. I'm a great believer that with the way the coaching, as I said it on here, the way the coaching is now in, the, in our academies, that these players arrive at 17, 18 years of age, fully formed footballers, Jude Bellingham being an obvious example. There is, of course, though, the place for those who haven't finished growing and physically filling out. And Skip uh, is a good example of that because, he, let's be fair, he's a different athlete from the one who we first started to see on the mm. substitutes bench for Spurs three years ago. He is a much stockier, well-built young man, but he hasn't lost any of his mobility through becoming stronger. And now watching people bounce off him is very encouraging indeed. And sometimes I think that's the other thing that managers are on the lookout for, isn't it? This player has the attitude, this player has the skill. Does he have the physical attributes necessary to survive in the Premier League? I'm not sure Oliver did, but that season in the Championship, where, of course, if you don't have physical power, you will just be knocked into the dirt every week. He is quicker than a lot of people think as well. He, he is deceptively quick along the mm-hmm. ground. I um, mean, he showed that yesterday with that with that driving run. His tackle his tackle numbers are often low, but his interception numbers are high because he doesn't need to make the tackles. He gets to the ball, doesn't he? There was one at Molyneux as well in the League Cup game against uh, Wolves where he got back and tackled Adama Traore. <laughs> and you, you know, you can't do that unless you're <laughs> you've got some decent speed. Now, I mentioned that when you ever opine about any of the players um, in the Spurs squad. No, there's not a chance. There's a certainty that you will be uh, choyoiked on Twitter and mocked by shoeless urchins in the street, as was the the case with 
uh, Jack Pitbrook, who is a you know perfectly nice lad. And then he, but he, I, I noticed uh, that you were pretty thin-skinned the day Jack on Twitter about the criticism you got about saying that Ben Davis was one of the Spurs' eleven best players. Davis is playing brilliantly well at the moment. I very much enjoyed his interview with Charlie the other day. I think he's um, perfect for the role that he's got in the team at the moment. The only reason it stood out is because I remember earlier in the season we had to do this like pick who you think Spurs' best 11 would be exercise, in which I think, I mean, Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we both had Ben Davis in there. We did, yeah. And the number of people who came on saying, like, you idiots, you morons, you wankers, you've got no idea, there's no way that Ben Davis should be in the team, he's terrible, he's rubbish. And that was just James, to be fair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, I'm kind of used to getting called a wanker on the internet, Mm -hmm. Um, but there was quite a lot of it. And then, so I've taken... A little bit of pleasure in seeing how well Davis has played recently. I, I found it fun. I said this when, because I, I said my dream in 11 at that point, which was early September, it was basically once the transfer window had been done. And I said, so I should play a three at the back and have Davis as the left centre back, which obviously, you know, he's done for Wales and all of that. But I did find it funny because then I was saying, you know, but when Conte does it, he's some kind of genius. But, you know, when I do it, it's just, you know, some yeah. moron, um, you know, picking Ben you Davis. You've never played the game. Exactly. But he's been amazing. And like, I did, um, yeah, as Jack says, I spoke to him last week, did an interview with him, which you can read on The Athletic. And he, you know, he was talking about what Conte's done with him. And and he clearly, he's just loving it. And he talked about the fact that he's got the license to get forward. And I feel at the moment, he's this kind of wild card who teams don't really know what to deal with. And that sounds ludicrous because we're talking about Ben Davis, who most people think of as like a, you know, a steady fullback rather than a kind of attacking weapon. But. They, he 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 makes these runs kind of between the lines where I don't think, you know, t- opposition teams really know well, who's picking him up. And there's yeah. been a bit of a trend this season with, you've seen Ben White, Rudiger's done it at Chelsea. Because teams are so well structured, you know, to deal with attacking patterns, but there's something very basic about a, defen- a centre-back just getting the ball and driving forward. It's a bit like, well, who's, whose job is it? What do we do? You know, teams are kind of short-circuiting. And, and he, at the moment... It's almost a get shot wise tactic, it. isn't it? They're so, exactly. They're so comfortably exactly. set up for tick attacker yeah. and pl- yeah. passing through the line. Somebody just running at you yeah. uh, just brings a whole new... And you can see the panic. Rudiger has panic teams this year um, when he's got himself forward. Exactly. And he was doing... Ben Davis been doing this really well. And again, yesterday, he got an assist. He also made the second goal with that flick on at the near post. He very nearly scored the other night what was an own goal. And, and Jack... Uh, and many others, when we thought it was Ben Davis, thought I'd done a reverse interview curse and someone had actually been good after an interview, which he has been, which is so rare. I mean, normally you interview someone and you're just waiting for them to have a stinker in the next game. But he's been fantastic. I think him and Mora, you could argue, he's probably been the biggest beneficiary of Conte coming in. Probably more so because Mora was starting games before, whereas Ben Davis went from this clearly second choice left back under Nuno to suddenly automatic starter and probably in the best form since he's been since the second half of the 16-17 season when he was the left wing back when Spurs went on that charge towards the title which they didn't they couldn't quite pull off do you think we can call it the Benaissance yeah of course we can teams will quickly soon start to look out for it though because they don't have a balancing act on the other side because uh, Davinson Sanchez is not the best with the ball at his feet, is he? He'll come out with it and kick it 15 yards in front of himself and leave, leave himself with a, a, a 60-40 tackle uh, to get the thing back. But uh, And, you know, again, the one I get grief for on the internet is we're all sticking up for, for uh, Eric Dyer. Eric Dyer's one of my favourite players. He does have 
He was had some poor form last season. I think he's been very good this year for Spurs. He still makes the occasional mistake. And I thought his interview was it in the Observer. Oh no, the Guardian on Saturday. No, Mail on Sunday. Oh, Mail on, on Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, really, really, really good. Really interesting. He's such yeah. an interesting bloke. A bloke with opinions about everything, including football, but way outside the world of football again. And I can't help feeling that having a rounded personality and a knowledge of the world in the end does you better. You'll do better things on the football pitch as well because you'll, you know, the the sight of Antonio Rudiger suddenly deciding to break the convention of centre back staying back won't slightly won't panic you quite so much. I've always thought that German footballers and the German national team always have that huge advantage, don't they? That they force their players, even if you, even if you're already in Bayern Munich's first team, like someone like Musiala, you still have to go to school full time, which we don't do in this school. Uh, in this country, till you're, till you're 18. I've always thought that gave them an advantage. Yeah. And you would see an England team that conceded a goal looking at the, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the coach's area for an answer. And you see the German team having a meeting in the centre circle about what they were going to do about it. Just, uh, I, I like the fact that Eric has something to say about everything else other than just football. You were going to say something there, Charlie. And I no, it's really interesting. I was talking about this with a friend about how it does feel very different. It feels like most of the players coming through, there is more of that emphasis on on education and having a hinterland. And and in mind too, Ben Davis, he revealed he's he's just done a t- he's uh, just completed a degree in business and economics and got a two one from the Open University. Like these are smart guys well, with interests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably take it if you're a professional footballer. <laughs> yeah. Juggling that with being a professional footballer. Um, yeah, you know these are smart guys with lots of interests, and I think. Uh, and you look at it with the players coming through as well, like because Saka, a lot was made of his yep. stellar A-level results and this kind of thing. But most of them are interesting, rounded people if they're given the time to talk about it. And obviously the problem is football is so wildly popular that players have to not talk very much. You know, there's a degree of muzzlement. But then when you hear them and you hear Dyer talking the way he does, and I'm sure Jack's found this as well, when you talk to footballers and are able to talk to them about other topics, they light up often because they're engaged and they're, you know, they, they don't just want to talk about football. Some do, but a lot have other things in their life. And and also what's interesting is the extent to which it helps if you are someone like Ben Davis or Eric Dyer, and I'm sure lots of the other players as well, if you have that intelligence, how much that helps working with Antonio Conte. Because I always think as much as you know, this ridiculous stereotypes of footballers being thick or whatever. Well, like you try going to a Conte or a Pep Guardiola training session and absorbing that information and then having the intelligence and the smarts to actually be able to carry it out. So I think it requires a huge level of focus and intelligence. So, you know, maybe it's not a surprise someone like Davis is flourishing. Let's move on then to what I thought was very interesting in that Spurs played most of the game without either of their so far First choice wing backs. The critical position, some would argue, Jack, in this system that Conte has so far employed. We saw Tanganga play right wing back and we saw almost full run out for Ryan Cessna. Let's start with Tanganga. I thought Tanganga had a pretty tough game. I think Royale's been pretty good so far and Tanganga not really quite as good, I think, as, as Royale was. And then on the other side, I thought Cessignon did pretty well going forwards. I think Reginald is maybe the almost the most important player in, in terms of how Conte plays. Like, there's no one else. I don't think there's anyone else out there who's really as good as what as Reginald in that kind of left wing back role. Like he's so good going forward. He's so quick. He gets all the way down to the other end of the pitch. His delivery is improving a bit. It's kind of testament to how how well Tottenham are improving now that they managed to get the win 
without either of their first choice wing backs and also without Romero you know their best their best defender has not played the last four games and won't play again until for a while and yet in Spurs's what in Spurs's last three league games they've conceded one goal conceded what three just over three xg so just over one one xg a game so not not disastrously bad so yeah it, it just goes to show that the defense is gradually improving even without the best available individuals yeah, I mean, I thought Cessignon was really encouraging. He's a player who, you know, his Spurs career has never really got going. But again, that position feels perfect for him, that left wing-back role. I mean, right wing-back, it's interesting because Emerson Royale is a much better defender than he is attacker. You know, when he goes forward, really the best-case scenario is you win a throw or a corner. He's that kind of attacking fullback I think whereas he's very solid defensively and Tanganga is also not a right wing back you know that is not a position he's going to end up playing uh, you know I'd be very surprised if that was the case anyway and they do this thing you know the lopsided attacking thing that Mourinho did as well and it kind of works because Regulon and Sessignon I mean Sessignon's position yesterday which I'm sure was instructed was very very high he was you know he was playing almost like a winger but it, yeah I, I thought that was really encouraging to see him playing with a bit more confidence especially after the horror show in Mura where he got the red card and you know Regulon is going to miss the odd game so having that depth is really important I, I mean I, I'm still curious and I don't get the sense it's going to happen particularly but to see you know, a Bergvine or even a Mora potentially playing in that right wing back role. But I think I think maybe the only way that would happen is if you had maybe a Ben Davis type as the left wing back to balance it out. Which we may see if, if Regulon doesn't get doesn't recover in time for Ren on Thursday because Sessing will be suspended. Watch out now. But... We're, we're getting very close to mentioning the V word, the VM player, aren't we here? <laughs> uh, under, under Antonio Conte. Look, I, I, I got, I got a different take on the, on the wing backs. I'll start with the positive one, and, that, and that's as I thought Sessignon was as good as Reguilon has been in that position. Now, I wouldn't say no, that's not to say he was better. His delivery is slightly more reliable. He's not quite as quick, but I thought he did very, very well there, albeit uh, against, I thought, a fairly porous right side of Norwich's team. I'm not so positive about Tanganga. I mean, I'm sure he's, he's, he's a good defender, and I'm sure he has uh, shown no, nothing that doesn't make me believe he hasn't got the smarts to, um, to play. Well, in defence for Tottenham, whether in a three or a four, wing back, he seems to have a real problem. And it's this. Once he gets past the halfway line, I'm not sure he knows what he's supposed to do. His instinct is to turn back and play the ball backwards or sideways to somebody else to do something with it. But he's a centre-back. I mean, he's he's either a centre-back or he played centre-back throughout well, the academy. don't play him out and, of position like that. No, no, exactly. I just don't think it suits him. In le- my only thought is that he's... Conte's playing him there in such a way that he accepts the fact that he's going to offer not very much going forward because you have that lopsided system and you can get enough from the left. But yeah, I think Conte's going to know he is not going to be someone who's going to be, you know, rushing forward and creating a lot of chances. Well, just just to put put some perspective into it as well, we have to allow for the fact that he was playing against Norwich's best player on the day. Brandon Williams was clearly up for Mm. a row. And in fact, it looked to me like he would be happy to be sent off to get out of that team. Um, but uh, <laughs> I thought he was he was very good, very aggressive at both ends of the, of the pitch um, and forced Yafit back on a number of occasions and engaged him very physically. I would also say that Kyle Walker, when he was first in the Spurs team, had exactly the same problem. He didn't know what to do when he got forward. Indeed, I thought he was the worst. If you slowed Kyle down to a standstill, he then became the worst passer of football I've ever seen. But he has improved. People have coached him and he has taken that coaching and he has improved himself. So I'm not giving up on Yafit Tanganga in that position, but I think he's a real bad fit at the moment there. 
And I think that was emphasized, though admittedly the game had broken up by the stage and it became basketball when Spurs were way up, when Doherty came on and looked like Cafu for 15 minutes. <laughs> um, but, but, but that was because I think Norwich had crumbled by that stage and there was just so much space uh, for Matt to run into. And that is his position. You know, Matt yeah. Doherty knows that position very, very well. And it's pretty damning that he wasn't starting that game. Yeah, that's a bad sign. Let's take a quick break and when we come back, we'll talk once more about the sunlit uplands of the top four. You'll listen to The View from the Lane with me, Danny Kelly, Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitbrook. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, we can't analyze the individuals any more than that, can we? Who, who got left out there? No one, the goalkeeper, the ever-consistent the ever consistent goalkeeper. Yeah. Who we've got a little line in Ornstein's column today that you know talks progressing and there's quiet confidence from some parties that that will get done, which would it's just really important. You know, I think that you know, I know Danny, you're a big fan as am I if you go to Reese. And it's I was thinking yesterday because his first game back after that layoff against uh, Brighton, the three month injury, that was against Norwich at home, and he was really solid that night. And in the subsequent two years, he's been really, really solid. He's just you know, he's low key been one of Spurs' best players. So I really hope they can get an extension signed. Friday wants to play. Absolutely peak age for a goalkeeper, no problem at all. And I always thought that once Paris brought Donnarumma in, uh, there was very little chance that it, because that's where he would have wanted to go to challenge yeah, Navas for that thing, place. Yeah. But, but that's not not a, a possibility no. now. All right, well, we'll look forward actually to, to seeing in David's column in the Athletic or where else it pops up there if he does actually sign a contract. As I say, if he's if he's physically fit and wants to do it. I see no reason to replace the goalkeeper whatsoever, which then takes us to another moment when we can all make fools of ourselves. I'm going to start with you, Jack, here. It's there. Spurs are fifth and have a game in hand on the team who are fourth who've got only two points ahead of them. If they win every game between now and the end of the season, they'll finish (laughs) in the top four. Let's assume they don't win every game from between now and the end of the season. The real race, since we think the top three are far and away, is West Ham, Manchester United, Arsenal, I guess. Can Spurs finish in the top four now, Jack? Is it time to start getting optimistic again? I think they can do because I think they will. Con- they've already improved under Conte, and I think they will continue to improve improve more. I think in terms of their rivals, you look at so West Ham have got don't have the experience of finishing the top four, but one thing they do have counting against them as well is the ex- the fact they're in Europe this season. You know they're going to have the Thursday nights, and they're actually doing pretty well in the Europa League. And I, I imagine they're going to go quite far in it. And we saw we've seen from Spurs over the years that playing every Thursday night really catches up with you by the time you get to March. Then Manchester United, well, a week or two ago, I'd have said no chance. But like Tottenham, they now have a very exciting new manager who is trying to teach a new and very different style of play overnight to the players. And I think you know, United have even better players than Tottenham do. So I'd probably be more worried about United than I would be about West Ham at this point, as much as I admire everything that Moyes has done at West Ham. And then, of course, there's Arsenal, who I don't really... I still don't really have much of a read on like how good they are. You know, they're capable of playing very well sometimes, but then I thought their you know, the second-half performance against Man United the other day was very poor. So I'd, I'd probably say United is the biggest threat, but Spurs, I'd say, are in there, definitely in there. Yeah, I mean, it always felt like 
it was a question of how long Solskjaer would stay for for all the chasing pack. That because this is the thing, the start of the season, the top four looked pretty much a foregone conclusion. But as we said at the time, you're just relying on one of them doing something stupid, and that was United. Now they've got a proper manager in. They just with the squad they have, they should be finishing in the top four. You've got to think. You, you've always looked at their players and been like, right, get mm. a proper manager and sort them out. They'll get fourth. So that's the worry for me is that now they have a proper manager, they 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 should be finishing above Spurs. I don't think West Ham will last the course. I've thought that throughout. They, you know, and to be fair, they continue to defy gravity and. The, you know, if you if you are one of that the chasing, that was a great pack, win against Chelsea. Let's be—I mean, I know Spurs. Listen, it Spurs was, here in yeah. West Ham, no, it was. it was a great win. It was, and they've beaten Liverpool as well, so they fully deserve to be there because you know we've seen a lot of teams playing Liverpool and Chelsea and been so far off it. And I'm talking about teams like Spurs, United, and Arsenal who are in that in yeah, swept commas, away chasing, by those teams, chasing yeah. pack. Yeah, because as we've said, they're on another level. But I do still think that with the injury Spurs have had, with the Europa League factor that West Ham will tire. So I, and I, I genuinely think it will come down to Spurs and United. But, and this leads on to our next topic, I, I genuinely believe this. I think uh, whether Spurs are in the Europa Conference League or not could be decisive. Do you think they should chuck Thursday? I mean, sorry, chuck's a loaded word. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think they should not get too upset if they lose on Thursday? Personally, and I've, you know, I've been very clear on this throughout from the first qualifier in August, I would be delighted if I were Tottenham to go out of that competition. I see so little upside to being in it, whereas I see an enormous upside to Conte having a week on the training ground with his players. He didn't have a pre-season. We know how good he is with his players. We saw what happened in 2016-17 with Spurs, with Chelsea not being in Europe. And it was interesting speaking to Ben Davis and hearing Eric Dyer as well talking about that. That's clearly something they look back on with a lot of regret, the fact that Chelsea were able to keep digging wins out in that period. And Dyer referenced the fact that possibly decisive was the fact they didn't have Europe. So for me, there's just so little upside to being in that competition. But I genuinely think if they have a week off, especially because they'll be up against United, most likely, who will still be in Europe, I think that could be decisive for them. I really do. Also, United are in the Champions League and and they're not going to win the league. So there's really quite a lot of there's probably too much pressure on Man United in the Champions League, I think. Like, they can't toss it off in the way that, say, let's say West Ham, for example, could get, you know, might realise by the time they get to February, you know what, the Premier League's actually more important than this. Oh, yeah. I think the only thing is United could just go out because they might play someone yeah, right. better than them in the last 16. But, um, yeah, no, I would. I'd, I'd, I'd be delighted if they... Then we're back into the rotation of West Ham... Um, tossing off the Europa League in a desperate attempt to finish fifth to qualify for the um, Europa League. Well, no, exactly. But also Europa League, you get Champions League. So there's a reason for staying in that, yeah, which there just yeah, isn't. Yeah. With the, I know the Europa Conference League, you get the Europa League, but... Yeah, no, well, that, no, no, but that is not quite the same level of... Uh, that uh, is uh, nothing of, like... No, of bait, is it? Let's be, let's be absolutely honest about it. I guess for me, that I wouldn't disagree. I think Arsenal are a good striker, by which I mean not one who's now in the kind of lazy autumn of his career. I don't think he's lazy, by the way. I think he's just um, past his best. If they had Son in their team, Arsenal would be, would be a, a real problem, wouldn't they? Yeah. West Ham, look, I, I think it's their best squad since Trevor Brooking, Alan Devonshire, all that lot. Individual injuries like the one to Bonner do hurt them, though. And having said that, they got past it at the weekend. We'll see. Manchester United, the issue is this. He will solve their defensive problems very quickly, Ranić. I think it's a bigger issue of what to do with... Bruno Fernandes and Cristiano Ronaldo not being able to quite get it together. They haven't. They, they've, they've defied several Portuguese managers to do it, um, and they may defy him. And it will come down to 
how they get the best out of Cristiano Ronaldo continually, or how they get the best by pretending uh, to him that he needs a rest. And that will decide, you know, whether Manchester United get right back into that top four. Hopefully Spurs can give them a good run for their money. Because as you say, Charlie, and we have to be honest about this, at the moment, and Santa Claus is still some weeks away, Manchester United have got better players. And we'll see how the coaches do with those groups of players. Which takes us to the game against Wren on Thursday night. They don't need to win the game um, against Spurs. So I'll ask you, Jack, first. Is Charlie right? What's, I mean, I hate it, but... You know, I, I'm, I'm often wrong about things. Would, would Spurs be better off putting out the kids, playing out a hapless draw here and getting out of this blinking competition? I think so, yeah. I think I agree with Charlie that there is not much benefit to it. I think if they, if they, if they went out this week, then they would be, people would take the piss out of them for about 24 hours mm-hmm. and then they'd get bored and we'd, everybody would move on. They'd take the piss out of them if they win it. Well, that's Then true. it'll be like, yeah. all you can do, all you can win is the Europa Conference League. Ha ha. <laughs> And even if, but Charlie, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but even if they come if they come second in the group, they have an extra two-legged yes, game in February, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's actually it's almost worse. So like finishing first is fine because at least you go through. But they can't the, finish first. They can't finish no. first anymore, can they? No. no. So it's either go out and never play, have to play again, or come second in the group, play a two-legged fixture against one of the third-place teams in the Europa League. Yeah, the kind of punishment fixture before getting reintegrated into the, the sort of glamorous mainstream <laughs> of the Europa Conference League <laughs> in March. So it's... Uh, I can't see the benefits. Listen, thank you very much indeed for that. We'll uh, be, uh, come back in a few seconds' time. Uh, I think a really interesting uh, topic, as I said at the top of the uh, podcast, Jack has been in the United States for over a week now. And I want to talk to him about how he found the way Spurs are viewed. Every club seems, certainly all the big clubs in Europe, and I'll include Spurs in that, despite them being in the punishment round, possibly, of the Europa Conference. (laughs) Um, I love it's called the punishment round now. Devil's Island um, for teams not quite doing their stuff in the conference. Spurs regard themselves as a big club. Just to see, are Spurs even a recognisable brand over there, to use that awful uh, word, or are they uh, something that people do uh, know about? We'll do that again just a few seconds time here on The View From The Lane. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, Jack, first of all, did you enjoy your holiday in the United States? Uh, yeah, I did. Thank you, Danny. Uh, I went to New York for Thanksgiving to see my in-laws and see some friends over there. Uh, and so I was away for quite a few Tottenham games and was really curious to see how like, how well followed they are over there. Like, We're very conscious of the fact at The Athletic that we have lots and lots of subscribers and our readers and listeners 
are based in the US. And you know, you can see how popular the Premier League football is by the fact that NBC have just paid $2.7 billion. Amazing deal. What an amazing for, for deal. Premier League deal. And, it, and so I was really, really curious to see what it was like. And it is just so striking that like, the number of people you see you know, in shirts, caps, tracksuits, whatever, of Premier League teams, and not even just the the big teams either. And my sense for Tottenham, and I'd be really, I'm genuinely really interested to hear from our, our readers and listeners on this, because I, I know for a fact that we have lots of readers and listeners in, in the US, is that Tottenham seems to be increasingly popular, and they seem to, they seem to, look, everyone's got their own reasons for supporting a team, but Tottenham seems to occupy this unique space as being a team which is, good enough to be fun to support because you know they're in Europe and they've got good players and they usually have high profile managers but also not to be so good that they're not not to be so good that you feel like you're just you're choosing a team that isn't fun you know my my impression this is based on much more anecdote than data but my anecdotal impression is that for people getting it who've got into football in the last 10 years to choose City or Chelsea is a bit like choosing to support like Facebook or Amazon it's just not really what young people would do whereas with Tottenham there's a sense of narrative or quest or about you know can they win their first tight league title since 1961 you know, one Spurs fan I spoke to when I was out there said you know who has chosen to support Spurs said it was in part because he supported the Boston Red Sox who of course mm. didn't win a World Series from what 1917 through to 2004 and Tottenham have a bit of that now that Liverpool have, you know, now that City have won their first title since 1968 and Liverpool have ended their slightly shorter drought, Tottenham really are the team that really kind of embody that sense more than anyone else. They've got all kinds of little tentacles that would, that would allow people to know them, wouldn't they, around the world? Like the England captain, a team that's reaching the semi-finals or finals of the big tournaments, happens to play for Tottenham Hotspur. The American football games. You don't understand America if you don't understand the power of American football and baseball over the populations there. And the very mention of the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium will be bleeping away in people's heads when they're watching two terrible American football teams batter each other into a 9-6 submission at the end of a, a, a four hours play. So Daniel Levy's policy has clearly been about making Tottenham big in, big in the US. Like, and that's been very successful. You know, that, that's been proven with their, certainly pre-COVID tours they go on to the US. It's been proven by the, the huge success of having NFL at Tottenham. And Levy is known to be close to various NFL owners and like making Tottenham kind of American focused, I think, has been a successful thing for the club. And you can see that by the fact that if you go to a bar to watch a Tottenham game in New York, it'll be quite busy. You know, I I didn't go to so the famous place in Manhattan is uh, Flannery's, I think, on 14th Street, where I, I didn't go to. But I did go to watch the Brentford game in a bar in Williamsburg called Banter. <laughs> uh, which I'm led to believe is like the main place in Brooklyn for Spurs fans watching the games. Now, unfortunately, the, because the, the Brentford, I think it gets very, very busy, like Saturday and Sunday mornings for Spurs games, but the Brentford game was Thursday, 2.30pm. So though I think there were probably maybe a dozen or so Spurs fans there. And it was fun. And, you know, the Spurs fans I spoke to there were very nice and very, very, very knowledgeable. And Americans, not expats. For the most part, yeah. There were a handful of other Brits there, but for the most part... These are Americans. But if you want a sign of like how big the Premier League were, it is right now. On the table next to us, there were these two lads who I think were probably in their early 20s who were Americans who clearly just decided, you know, they were, they were Brentford fans and they'd clearly decided to support Brentford in the last year or two as you would. And one of them had a Brentford shirt with Ivan Tony's name on the back 
and was singing in his American accent with just a bus stop in Hounslow. <laughs> uh, and when you see that, you think, Christ, like, the Premier League is just... That's is, cut through. Yeah, that is cut through. Like, the Premier League is just huge. Like, it's huge and getting bigger, and that's why there's so much money being thrown at it. And that's why why the NFL fear it so terribly, because they know that their sport is not a global sport, whereas soccer is, and the global leader in in that is the Premier League. Now, the NFL will still point to the size of their television deal and say, we are the biggest sporting organization on the planet. But if it comes to penetration, recognition, knowledge, then the Premier League is, is now... Uh, definitely leaving that has, has left them behind and that's an amazing thing to think about and you know and the IPL will point to the, to the size of its television deal but it's only really for about 12 countries in the world nobody's getting up in Quito at three o'clock in the morning to watch the IPL you know what I mean and it will be interesting to see if one day because of course Levy's end game is to get somebody American to buy the club isn't it an American yes. corporation or an American individual and so far I think unless you two know more than me which would really really wouldn't be that that difficult he hasn't really had many nibbles because of the astonishing valuation that the market put on the club. Yeah, I think I think the valuation is high. I do think there is a lot of interest, though. It's a very attractive asset to a lot of people to a lot of people in the US, whether that's an NFL owner or on the kind of private equity side. A big part of that is the possibility of, of NFL at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. But another big part of that is the brand popularity of Tottenham in the US and. You know, if you were an NFL owner or an American kind of hedge fund and you saw how many people in New York were wearing Tottenham Hotspur shirts, you'd think, well, you know, maybe this is something that's worth that's worth getting involved with. So it is a big part, I think, over, I mean, even if it's not articulated, of the kind of broader Daniel Levy strategy for the club. But I would be really interested to hear from more of our American listeners. Mm. I know this is a popular podcast in the US. DM us, let us know a little bit about what you think about why why Tottenham is increasingly popular in New York. Because it does feel like it's more more on the rise, I think, than anyone else. Maybe 10 years ago, Arsenal would have been the kind of inverted commas cool team in that area. But I think it's now definitely Tottenham. It's pertinent as well, because last week, the American couple who I spoke to in Burnley, who'd come oh, yeah. over for the game, you know, all the way from Texas, and Ken Saxton, um, who I spoke to him and his wife, Brandy, but Ken was saying, ex- echoing what Jack was saying there about, he, in a very uh, kind of diligent way, said he researched which team to support for the best part of 18 months. Wow. Uh, yeah, and settled on Spurs for the reasons that Jack's outlined. The fact that they were good, but they weren't so good that it was kind of boring, but also that they, it, they he wanted to pick a team that couldn't really be relegated. I think when this would have been kind of turn, you know, into the 2010s, that kind of period. So I, I guess, you know, the time at which Spurs were starting to be good, but they still weren't one of the best. They didn't just spend loads of money. So yeah, that obviously does resonate with people. And I remember talking to Matt Slater about who is an expert in this area on kind of, you know, who could buy a club like... Tottenham and at that valuation you are basically talking about nation states and the you know let's not get back into those issues you know or with, with some of them some of the ones that could afford it and then you are talking about things like private equity in the US and that feels like you know a more realistic possibly desirable which is something which takes some saying but go on yeah, yeah well exactly yeah uh, those well-known um, philanthropists, philanthropists. yeah <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean that that does that it, there aren't that many options when your valuation is is as high. Well, as I would say is. about about the, the valuation thing; these things are 
it's a bit like having a London house. No matter how many people tell you your house is overvalued, so that the ninth person in the queue buys it from you. And if you look at it, proper elite clubs, how many people have actually lost money so far buying an elite football club in Europe, particularly in the Premier League? I mean, you could argue AC Milan went bankrupt. But of course, the Chinese people never existed, so didn't lose any money. And the Glazers, you know, Manchester United has powered ahead in its valuation. Despite poor performances on the field, the valuation continues to increase. And so thanks for that. And thank you, uh, Jack, for your experiences there. Because often I think we can sit here and read reports and, and pontificate about these things. But often just by getting down and sitting down with people who like football, you get a, a, a more realistic feel of what is actually going on with these football clubs. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us. I won't be back with you on Friday. We'll be looking back on the match because I'm getting married. Ah, congratulations. (laughs) I'm getting married Thursday. Yeah, sprung that on you, didn't I? Yeah. Yes, even what you see before you, this rusting hulk of a man. Um, (laughs) Thankfully, thankfully, she's got very low standards. So, uh, (laughs) um, yeah, we're getting married. I'm looking forward to it hugely, actually. So please... Please don't make a mess of the podcast on Friday, and I'll be back. And Danny, you'll, you'll send us the details for the venue and everything, presumably. Well, I, well, I would love to have loved to have had a short notice, I but have, I, I, I would have I can make loved it. to have had a gigantic wedding. The current circumstances just don't allow for that. Indeed, recent changes in what's going on here in Ireland means that uh, we'd be lucky if, if me, her, and the celebrant turn up. So we'll uh, we'll see hmm. how we go. Listen, thanks for everything. They will be back on Friday as well. If you're not already a subscriber, you really should be because you can read all the Athletic's articles on Spurs and everything else on the site by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And right now you can get 33% off a full subscription. So that address again is theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. We'll be back soon. I'll be back a bit later than that. Thank you all for listening. The Athletic.